Don't tell me about the positions you've held. Tell me about the problems you've solved. So you see, if we want someone to bet on the jockey, they need to have examples of where we have solved these problems before, where we have turned around a company, where we have produced profits, where we've delivered things on deadline, where we troubleshot things that went wrong and were able to recover. So when we give those real life examples of where we've been there, run this, that's when they believe it because they realize we've done it before for someone else. We can do it again for them. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. All right, practitioners, listen up. I have had a conversation over and over again for the last few weeks, and that is happening in my DMs or on our coaching calls or with members of our broader community. And every time the question is, Megan, what exactly do I need to have in place in order to have more freedom with respect to my income and my time? I just can't keep working. And what we have found after working with literally thousands of clinicians, whether you're a naturopathic doctor, an MD, a DO, a TCM practitioner, it doesn't matter. We have found that there are five common elements that are in place in an individual's business when they are able to capture time or money freedom. And so what I've done is I've put together a free training for you. This free training is going to be taking place on March 29th and again on April 4th. I'm giving you some options because we're doing it live. In this training, I'm going to show you the exact five ingredients that you must have in place to have options in your practice beyond trading time for money, even if your regulations are tricky where you practice. I'm going to show you how to increase your recurring revenue. I'm going to identify the sources of business risk that most practitioners are overlooking. I'm going to help you understand what key decisions you need to make to stop trading time for money and treading water within your practice. And I'm going to talk about how to market your practice strategically so that it's not in alignment with your time. It's in alignment with your value. If this sounds of interest to you, you can head on over to our show notes, meganwalker.com forward slash podcast to find the link in today's episodes show notes. You can also register by heading over to cliniciabusinesslabs.com and there will be a prompt right there front and center on the website. I will see you there. As a general rule, I do not read multiple nonfiction books by a single author. I read one that you write. I get the gist of it. I'm not going to come back for all of them. There's so many ideas out there in the nonfiction world that it's not that I can't be bothered. It's that the FOMO of the new material in other places seriously takes over. Now, there have been two exceptions to this. The first is Ryan Holiday. The first time I was out reading something by Ryan Holiday, I was running. It was a hot day in June. I totally remember where I was because every 30 seconds, I needed to stop to scribble down some new idea or to like recapture uh, a sentence that he had just shared. He's an incredible author. That book that stopped me in my tracks was called uh, The Ego is the Enemy. And I have subsequently devoured everything else Ryan Holiday has ever written. Now, there is a second author that has done the same thing to me, and her name is Sam Horn. 
I first encountered Sam at a conference, uh, Mindshare conference, and I'd heard rumblings about her brilliance at putting words to the ideas, to the sort of bumbling ideas that we have as clinicians around programs or other things. She could just immediately capture them and put them into a framework and title them and make it intriguing and cultivate curiosity with audiences. And I wanted to figure out what this woman was all about. And so I sat down beside her at a breakout that was happening one lunch hour. Now, I want you to picture this because we were in Phoenix in October. So it was about 100 million degrees out. And the table was situated in such a way that only a third of it actually had shade and everyone else ran the risk of death if they sat in the sun in order to be part of this conversation. And the only space for me was to sit in the blazing sun so I could have access to Sam's ideas. And my plan was just to listen in. And where I was situated, it meant that I spoke last. And the next session started and suddenly I found myself sitting outside melting under the Phoenix sun with Sam Horn. And let me tell you, her reputation preceding that was nothing compared to the conversation that we had. We started to play with ideas, as she would say. We threw down words. We took these esoteric concepts and suddenly turned them into something that could start to feel real. Sam is gifted at this, and we know this not only through her multiple decades of work in this realm, but as the leader of the Intrigue Agency, as the founder of the Kung Fu Training Institute, as the author of countless books, as someone who herself has a TEDx talk and works with others to help position their ideas for TEDx. She works with founders who are looking to pitch investors. She works for speakers who are looking to nail that keynote. Her gift is to move people from a place of, as she talks about in this interview, infobesity to intrigue. When I have members of my mastermind who are struggling with how they title something or how they pull the words together to make their work intriguing or matter or capture attention, there is only one resource I send them to, and that is the body and breadth of work of Sam Horn. It is a total dream to have her on the podcast. We blew apart the concept of leadership and how one goes about earning respect. There's not a single human who wants to have impact in the world who shouldn't be listening to this conversation. So it is my pleasure and with excitement that I introduce you to my friend, Sam Horn. Sam Horn, welcome to Impact. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to sharing some ideas with your listeners. Well, I'm just going to say before we get into anything so that my listeners like really understand anytime I have an opportunity to uh, speak to you is an absolute honor. And it is like cotton candy for my brain. You have this tremendous capacity to to triangulate vocabulary and ideas and then throw them all together into this framework that becomes this sort of intellectual lunch and I love it. I thoroughly enjoy these, these opportunities. And so true to form, we walked in with one agenda and had a really quick conversation. And we are going to shift course slightly on what it is that we are speaking about. But before we do that, Sam, I'm wondering if you can give my audience, I was going to say a quick background on who you are and why you're so uniquely positioned for this conversation, but your experience is so broad. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how we can make this <laughs> this quick. But I know if anybody can do it, 
You can. 60 seconds. Ready, go, right? Go. Go. 60 seconds. Uh, CEO of the Intrigue Agency, and I have the holy trinity. I write, speak, and I coach. So when I write, uh, like we said, I just got a wonderful new publisher weekly review of my book, Talking on Eggshells. Tung Fu's been out there selling for 25 years. When I speak, it's for Intel, Cisco, Boeing, Asian Leadership Conference, etc. And when I coach, I work on their TEDx talks or South by Southwest talks or signature keynotes and on what you and I are going to be talking about today, which is think of an important communication. And you want to, yes, you want this approved or you want this funded or you want this green-lighted. What can you say that so favorably impresses someone that they say, well, of course I'm going to work with you or hire you or choose you instead of the other people. So that's what we're going to do today. Okay. Before we do that, I want everyone to note what just happened because I have had over 300 guests on this podcast. When I say share a quick story, you know, 20 minutes later, we get to where we are starting in the conversation. And Sam gave a talk this past year at Mindshare. I'm not sure what it's called, but the essence was put a sock in it. That might even be the the title. And she was so great about when you are a guest on a podcast, can you distill your idea or your introduction or your soundbite into 60 seconds or less or nine seconds or less as it pertains to our ability to hold attention. So I want you to listen to this interview through two lenses. One, the sheer brilliance of what it is that Sam has to say. And then two, how she communicates these really powerful ideas, because there's so many layers and lessons that you can learn. (laughs) So, you know, thank you. And a comment about that is that uh, I think, you know, I helped start and run the Maui Writers Conference. Uh, Writers Digest said it was the best writers conference in the world. And one of our favorite keynoters was Elmore Leonard. And a woman stood up in the audience and she said, Mr. Leonard, why do people love your book so much? And do you know what he said? No. I try to leave out the parts people skip. (laughs) So we're going to leave out the parts people skip. We're going to hit the ground running and deliver so much value that if we do this with our decision makers, we're going to uh, open doors and close deals. Great. Okay. So let's jump into this concept of earning respect because I think sometimes we have a false narrative around how respect is earned. I will share an observation that one of the arenas in which I find people assume that they are going to be conferred respect is based on the length of time they have spent in school or the number of letters they have behind their name. But I suspect that that has nothing to do with the formula of how one actually earns respect. So let's start there. How do we earn it if not through school? You are so right. Uh, Richard Branson said, time is the new money. And I think that time is a new trust. And the clock starts ticking the second we stop talking. So if we hit the ground running, then people's eyebrows go up and that we have earned their respect because we've already delivered value. Ready for some ways to do that? A hundred percent. Now, unless people are driving, I hope that they'll get some paper and that they'll put a vertical line down the center. Because people say, Sam, how does your brain work? Well, I believe in juxtaposing everything. I think it's the quickest way to make complex ideas crystal clear. And furthermore, you were telling me you've got a lot of got it going on entrepreneurs on the call. So we want to make what we say one of a kind instead of one of many. We want to make what we say merchandisable or monetizable, proprietary. And this is a way to do that. So ready? I'm set. Okay. Vertical line down the center. On top of the left-hand column, put infobesity. 
<laughs> On top of the right-hand column, intrigue. We are going to turn infobesity into intrigue. Now, by the way, if you notice what I did there, I showed the shift in three words, infobesity to intrigue, right? So we already have the meta idea. Now we immediately go to an example. So 60-second example, going to hold me accountable for this? Got it. Okay, Maui Writers Conference, first year, you could pitch your screenplay to Ron Howard. You could pitch your novel to the head of Simon & Schuster. A woman came out of her pitch session with tears in her eyes. I said, what happened? She said, I put my manuscript down on the table. He took one look at it. He said, I don't have time to read all that. Tell me in 60 seconds what it's about and why someone will want to read it. She said, I just saw my dream go down the drain. And so the first thing we're going to do to turn infobesity into intrigue, over on the left, put tell, over on the right, put ask. Haven't we been told to tell people what we're going to tell them and then tell them what we told them and then tell them? That's a prescription for being a bore, snore, or chore. (laughs) So here's what we're going to do over on the right. Now, do we have time for a 60-second story to set up how we can turn telling into asking? We sure do. Okay. So I think, you know, I was the pitch coach for Springboard Enterprises. We've helped women entrepreneurs get $26 billion in funding and valuation. Robin Chase, Zipcar, Gail Goodman, a constant contact. So Kathleen Callender, Springboard person, came to me. She said, I got good news and bad news. I said, what's the good news? She said, I'm speaking in front of a room full of investors at the Paley Center in New York. I said, that's great news. I said, what's the bad news? She said, Sam, I'm going at 2.30 in the afternoon. I only have 10 minutes. She said, you can't say anything in 10 minutes. She said, how can I explain my team credentials and our our exit strategy and our financial projections? And I said, you don't have 10 minutes. You have 60 seconds. 60 seconds. Want to hear the 60-second opening we came up with that helped her win millions in funding? And she was Business Week's most promising social entrepreneur of that year. Of course I do. (laughs) By the way, let's step out, see what we're doing. If you do a podcast interview, if you do a media interview, they ask a question, answer, question, answer. No, 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 no. That's, That's just flat, isn't it? It's like you ask and like you tell a story and then ask, can I tell that story? Or would you like the other two of those three steps or something? Now we have a dialogue instead of a monologue, right? Mm hmm. Okay. 60-second story. Here we go. Did you know there are 1.8 billion vaccinations given every year? Did you know up to a third of those are given with reused needles? Did you know we're spreading and perpetuating the very diseases we're trying to prevent? Imagine if there were a painless one-use needle for a fraction of the current cost. You don't have to imagine it. We've developed it. In fact, are your eyebrows up? Do you want to know more? Guess what? Kathleen Callender of PharmaJet. Do you know how she used to start off her explanation, elevator speech, PowerPoint deck? No. Explaining (laughs) that PharmaJet was a medical delivery device for subcutaneous inoculations. It was a what? (laughs) You know, look, see how our eyebrows are crunched up? We don't get it. And if people don't get it, we don't get what we want. So we turn medical delivery device into subcutaneous inoculations into these three parts. Now, I hope people are going to write this down. 
Think of something you want a yes to. Think of something you need to explain. Think of a product or program or service or an idea. Step one, what are three did you know questions you could ask about the problem you're solving, about the issue you're addressing, about the need you're meeting? Now, what are startling statistics? Did you know that this number of people are being affected? Did you know that the cost has gone up this much? Did you know that this is actually getting worse? Quickest way to get cynics' attention is to introduce something they didn't know. So three startling statistics about the problem you're solving, etc. Step two, use the word imagine. The word imagine pulls people out of their preoccupation because they're picturing your point. They're not distracted. They're seeing what you're saying. Link the word imagine with three attributes of your program, three benefits of your product, three advantages of your services. Go back to Kathleen Callender. Think about her decision makers. What were they thinking about, worrying about, concerned about? Well, reused needles, so we made it one use. They're thinking about painful inoculations, so we made it painless. Almost all decision makers care about money, so we made it a fraction of a current cost. Do you see how in a world of infobesity, we distilled her UVP into one succinct sentence where people are going, who wouldn't want that? Step three, say these words. You don't have to imagine it. We're boom, doing it. Here's an article. Here's a testimonial. Here's, you know, an endorsement from a respected thought leader. Now you can do all that in 60 seconds. How do we win respect? By hitting the ground running, turning a monologue into a dialogue, introducing something that is relevant that people don't know, giving evidence and precedence about how we've done it before. Boom, you have just won respect. Sam, is respect all about communication? Ah, interesting. <laughs> I think, wouldn't you say it's communication and example, right? Mm-hmm. Do our words match our actions? Do people see the congruence there that we're not just saying the words, you know, we believe this, we're a model of this, we're exemplifying this. When we feel that congruence with people, that's when we bet on the jockey. I want to explore this idea a little bit uh, more because I, you know, I think that we, at face value, we're like, okay, I get this. And I understand the integrity piece and how this earns respect. I want to go a little bit deeper into this concept of, of betting on the jockey. And I have been that person, that woman in the room, pitching my idea to investors. And I realize it actually doesn't matter what I say. It is how I say it. It's how I show up. It's my past history. Like they were, they were half interested in what it is we were building and mostly interested in who I was to lead the thing that had been built. How else can we go after this? Let's put explain on the left. Let's put example on the right. The way how how we really win and earn their respect is instead of explaining, you know, how this works, our business model, da, 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 that can be infobesity. We're going to give real life examples. So I'll give you an example so we can do it. I found out that Elon Musk was going to speak at the National Press Club in D.C., So my son works in mission control at NASA, Johnson Space Center. I said, Tom, if I have a chance to ask Elon a question, what should it be? 
He said, Mom, my job is with the ISS, the International Space Station, so my job is safe. But everyone with the shuttle was laid off, and they're all applying to SpaceX. Ask Elon how they can land an interview and get a job. I had an opportunity to ask Elon that question. He gave the most brilliant one-sentence response I've ever heard. You ready? Mm-hmm. Don't tell me about the positions you've held. Tell me about the problems you've solved. So you see, if we want someone to bet on the jockey, they need to have examples of where we have solved these problems before, where we have turned around a company, where we have produced profits, where we've delivered things on deadline, where we troubleshot things that went wrong and were able to recover. So when we give those real life examples of where we've been there, run this, that's when they believe it because they realize we've done it before for someone else. We can do it again for them. So I appreciate that what's important here is this idea of problems being solved. But what is equally intriguing to me is how you had the opportunity to ask Elon Musk a question. Was this like complete manifestation or how did you make that happen? Today, we're, we're recording this on International Women's Day. And so I have a chance to speak at a lot of women's professional development pro- programs. And one of the things we talk about is, do you have an intentional brand or an accidental brand? And an accidental brand is when you ask your supervisors, decision makers, who would give you the promotion or the raise or the project lead. Uh, so what do you think of Sam? Uh, what do they say? If they say who? Uh-oh, you have an accidental brand. They don't even know you. And uh, if they say, oh, yeah, she's really nice. Uh-oh, that's not going to get the position. So once again, an example to show what I'm talking about, how it works in the real world, and then how we can replicate it. So I was speaking for Intel. And I went to some of their SVPs and I said, okay, let's address the elephant in the room. Please be honest. I'm not going to throw you under the bus or tell you where I got this. What do you think women are doing that is sabotaging their professional success? And I'll always remember one guy said, you know, Sam, we were opening up our office in Paris. Well, I have a woman on my team who was a foreign exchange student to Paris. You know, she, she speaks great French. She still has colleagues there. When we were in our meeting, I threw her hat in the ring. When I said, you know, Sylvia, and they went, who? And I said, you know, Sylvia, she's been on, no one knew who she was. And finally, someone said, oh, yeah, she's in some of my meetings, but she never says anything. And he said, I called Sylvia in and I said, don't you realize that you are throwing a wrench in your own career? And why aren't you speaking up in meetings? And she said, I tried. She said, it's just everyone's jockeying for position. It's a shouting match. You know, I would come up with an idea. People ignore it. Five minutes later, Bob would come up with the same idea. Great idea, Bob. I just gave up. (laughs) And he said, don't you understand that if you are not contributing at meeting, decision makers conclude you don't have anything to contribute. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we talked about is that at every single meeting, you're going to contribute and you're going to get a name for being resourceful. You're going to use the word resourceful. You know what? Let's get resourceful. I know we can figure this out. Let's put our heads together and, and turn this around because use the words you want to be known for. Because if you use the word resourceful a lot, they're going to conclude you're resourceful, right? 
So that's just one way I think that we can earn attention and respect. So decision makers, when our name comes up, they know who we are, they like who we are, they respect and trust who we are, and they decide that we're the one for the job. When you contribute at a roundtable, do you contribute first or do you wait to the end? I love your questions. Guess what? We do what happened yesterday. Founders Institute, uh, which is worldwide, had their annual meeting. Tim Draper, big investor, was their speaker. And then we went into breakout rooms. I'm not throwing them under the bus because it was a wonderful event. However, we had people from dozens of different countries. And when we went into the breakout room, guess what? They had not assigned a moderator or a facilitator. So we had all these people staring at each other. And I thought, we have a, a brilliant brain trust here. Somebody's got to take the lead. I'm as much as somebody as anybody. I'm going to take the lead. However, I didn't do it by talking about myself. I did it by honoring the group and saying, you know, aren't we fortunate that Founders Institute has brought us from all around the world, investors and startup founders and entrepreneurs, etc. So let's each take 60 seconds to talk about something that Tim said that we really agree with or that was profound or insightful or actionable. And then we facilitated 60 seconds. When that kind of started running out of steam, then I said, all right, I know that Founders Institute wants us to connect. So why don't we have a 60 seconds what we want to ask from the community or 60 seconds what we want to offer to the community and then put in chat so that you can. So you ask, should I go first? Absolutely. We go first as a conductor, as a facilitator, as someone who is creating a community. And so it's a rising tide experience for all involved. Do you have a framework for leadership that you follow or is it an inherent? understanding of the room. Well, I'm going to turn back. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Look at look at these skills in action, <laughs> uh, everyone. And for me, a huge part of leadership is about listening and and reading the room and then following that uh, that intuition around what is needed in that given moment. No one's ever asked me about a framework and I love creating frameworks, but I don't I wouldn't say that I have one. It would start by listening to the room. And just to kind of feed off of what you were saying before around this notion of contribution, I think sometimes we can get caught in, like, we're just trying to check contribution off our list, as opposed to really sitting and understanding what the outcome of the room is looking for. And I think probably what I do is try to reverse engineer what the outcome of the room is looking for, to understand how we need to facilitate what's taking place. But I only say that because no one's ever asked me that question before. <laughs> what she said. <laughs> See, isn't this, I call this read and lead the room, yes. right? And mm -hmm. what you just said, uh, Jen Treglia, who is a SVP of Johnson & Johnson, is quoted in the book. And this is what we discussed, the ability to perceive and respond to and reflect and direct nuance, right? Mm -hmm. So we walk into a room and as you just were talking about, you pay attention to what's going on in the room. It's an interpersonal situational awareness. And we may have a great idea, but we just had a great idea five minutes ago and it's too fast on the heels of the other one. So we put a sock in it, right? It's just TMI at that point. Mm -hmm. Or we mm -hmm. see that someone is in a bad mood and we were going to recommend something or request something that costs money. They're not in a mood to say yes to it. So we save it, right? So what you just said about reading the room and then leading the room is a way that we will always be welcome in any room. 
this notion of nuance, I'm I'm pretty sure in the era of 2020 to 2023, this is my most favorite word. Wow. Because I actually think it is the most powerful concept in any given conflict at any given moment. So watching, I'm just going to call it the online conflict that's taken place over the course of the last few years. The thing I feel like I just keep wanting to put my hand up and acknowledge is that no one is speaking to nuance. What, like what, how do we bring more nuance into conversations? How do we create space for nuance and not alienate those people who are stuck in either camp black or camp white? Wow. Okay. So we get to play, right? So what's your definition of nuance? To me, nuance is like the gray area in the middle. It's like the intellect and the feelings and the mush pot of reality that is, uh, all the different ideas floating around the room. Wow. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> mushpot's not a word, by the way, which is, you know, I left op- some options open. It works. <laughs> yeah, okay. We all knew what I was talking about. <laughs> uh, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author and columnist and humorist Gene Weingarten said, let's address the elephant in the room. Yo, elephant. <laughs> yes, I love that. <laughs> so see, what you're talking about is if we take the time to jump off our own agenda, right, and mm-hmm. we pay attention to the elephant in the room, is it maybe these two people over here are saying they're green, but their jaws clenched, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. is it maybe of uh, the decision maker over here is back in his or her chair with complete lack of animation, right? Or enthusiasm. And it's like, the answer is going to be no, folks. We've got to do something to get them literally and figuratively on the edge of their seats where their eyebrows are up, their lights on in their eyes, where they're showing some enthusiasm. So what you just said about paying attention to nuance and understanding that nuance is running the show. Nuance is totally running the show. And if we're not seeing it, I also feel like we're missing the boat. There's an incredible amount of anger and at the same time opportunity floating around the world. If we would just like throw on the nuance lens and witness it in our our day-to-day lives. This is a huge part of the lens through which I see content right now, but sorry, you were going to jump in there. Well, you know, it's just because we've been talking about business Mm -hmm. and workplace and investing and pitches and so forth. So let's switch gears for a second. Can we give a parenting example that is in alignment with what we were just discussing? Sure. Do you need me to throw the parenting example down or do you have one? Oh, no, I've got one. Oh, (laughs) good. (laughs) Do you also help with parenting, Sam? Because I've got a lot of things we can throw down. Oh, boy. Well, and that's why I thought of this example, because what you were talking about is once again, sensing you talked about the potential outcomes and understanding we can either reflect what's happening or we can direct what's happening. And if we are paying attention to the nuance and to what we do want instead of what we don't, we often can say something that will facilitate that. So here's the example is that I was in New York and I was visiting uh, my son, Andrew and Mickey and their son, Hero. And Hero was about one year old at that time. So he was crawling and creeping everywhere, right? So we're in the living room and Hero crawls over and there's a guitar on a stand and he hauls himself up on the guitar and he starts pounding on the string. Now, Andrew could have done a lot of things. He could have yanked the guitar away and said, no, he could have said, Hero, stop that. He could have said a lot of things. Do you know what he said? No. 
One word. Gentle. I saw Hero's face change. I saw almost a sense of wonder emerge on his face. And then he went strum, strum, strum. And there were bells on the window and he went ring, ring, ring. And in that moment, by reading the nuance and by being aware that we can reflect what happened or direct what happens next, and one word can facilitate that. As a result of that, Hero, at age five, is a wonderful little musician. And it was because he was supported instead of sabotaged in that initial effort. What you're talking about in every example are, are I just feel like we're getting juicier and juicier into leadership skills mm. and tools that we can deploy in business. I want to shift a little bit and sort of play off of what you just talked about in terms of difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these scenarios are in scenarios of where like we find ourselves in this incredible opportunity. But what about those everyday difficult conversations where things maybe aren't going our way and we've got to pick up the phone and address something or we need to stand up for ourselves or we need to inquire about things. This is a whole arena of skills and language that I don't feel necessarily we are all handed as we grow up. Can we start to unpack this idea a little bit? How do we arm ourselves with words and language and courage uh, to be able to have some of these challenging conversations? I welcome this. I think, you know, I wrote a book called Tung Fu, which has been selling around the world for 25 years. In fact, the National Public Library in China said it was their most checked out book in 2018. And here's why. On our notes, conflict on the left, cooperation on the right. Resistance on the left, receptivity on the right, resentment on the left, rapport on the right. So how can we turn conflict into cooperation, resistance into receptivity, and resentment into rapport? I'll give you a quick example. It's uh, over on the left. Please put the words can't because. In fact, even put no, can't because. Can we start this meeting? Well, no, we can't because everyone's not here yet. Can I talk with Charlie? Well, no, you can't. He's out on vacation this week. Uh, can we go ahead with this project? Well, no, you can't because we're still waiting for the approval. Those words can't because are like a verbal door slamming in people's face. They will, it will lead to a conflict. People will resent us, even if what we're saying is justified. And they will resist whatever comes next because it's being done to them, not by them. So over on the right, please put the words, yes, as soon as. Yes, we can start the meeting as soon as we have a quorum. And if everyone's not here in five minutes, we're going to go ahead and get started anyway. Thanks for your patience. Yes, you can talk with Charlie. He's on vacation this week. Do you want to leave a message or do you prefer to call him back? And I'll always remember a woman did one of these and she said, this is going to change the way I parent. And I said, why? She said, Sam, I'm a single mom. I have three kids under the age of 10. It seems like all I ever do is tell them, no, no, you can't watch TV. You haven't done your chores. No, you can't uh, play with your friends. You haven't finished your homework. She said, now listen to the difference. Instead of no, you can't because yes, you can watch TV as soon as you finish your chores. Pick up your room, take out the trash. You can turn on Simpsons or Discovery Channel. <laughs> you know, It's like, yes, you can play with your friends as soon as you finish your homework. Do your math. Let me have a look. And she was the one who said, Sam, this isn't semantics. It changes the whole dynamic of the relationship. 
Mm-hmm. Because when we tell people, no, you can't because, they perceive we're the big meanie keeping them from what it is they want. And when we say yes as soon as or right after, now who's in charge of getting what it is they want? I love it. And it's funny. I was like, this is just neurochemistry. It's a totally different cascade that gets triggered when it's yes and as opposed to no but. In that, we have words to lose and words to use. And I, it's a waterfall of words. And as you say, it sets up a cascade of consequences for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole bunch of, uh, you want some more words to lose and words to use? What works best for you? For me? Yeah. In general? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yes always works for me. So <laughs> <laughs> I will. <laughs> Do we need to go even deeper than that, Sam? But like, yes, will always be. Uh, a big one. Let's think about someone, a naysayer who is his thinking of the exception to this rule, because justifiably, they may be thinking, Sam, sometimes there is no as soon as. <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. I just can't give people what they want. What do I say then? Mm-hmm. Over on the left, put the word there's nothing or there's no way, especially with the pandemic and so forth. There are a lot of times it's there's no way I can change things. It's not my decision. Stop blaming me. There's nothing I can do. And when we use the words, there's nothing or there's no way, people conclude we don't care. We're not listening. And that's when they get louder in in an effort to make us care or listen. Over on the right, here's the example. I certify people in Tung Fu, and there's a woman named Gwen Fujie in Hawaii. And she's been very close with her brother all of their life. And uh, his health had really deteriorated. He finally went and got tests done. And then the doctor called and said, please come in and see me at nine o'clock tomorrow and please bring a family member with you. And he knew it was not good news. She said she went with him to the doctor's office. And when they walked in, the doctor had his head down. He had all the charts and the scans and so forth in front of him. And without looking up, he said, it's stage four cancer. We caught it too late. There's nothing we can do. That was it. She said she wanted to reach across the desk and say, couldn't you at least say, I wish, I wish there were more I could do? Couldn't you at least say there's something I can suggest? Here is the contact information for support groups so you can, you know, in the real world, there are times we, we are the messenger of bad news and we cannot change the bad news. We can change the way we deliver the bad news so at least people know that we care instead of shrugging our shoulders, not my fault, don't blame me, nothing I can do. It's interesting as you're just talking about this language, and I really, I appreciate that. I found this clinically when I was in practice, like I witnessed every day the power of giving people hope. I felt that part of my responsibility, although I was never delivering this type of news, part of my responsibility of what I had to bring to the table was also the game plan for hope. What does hope look like in this particular scenario? Because it cushioned uh, the experience or the expectations, um, but it, it opened up, like back to this idea of neurochemistry, it opened up a totally different pathway that worked adjacent to the news. So, I mean, that's just a, a framework or thought that made me, uh, that brought me, you, that you brought up in that moment. You know, it's so powerful. John F. Kennedy said, our task is not to fix the blame for the past. 
It's to fix the course for the future. And as you just said, over on the left is helpless and hopeless. Mm -hmm. And over on the right is helpful and hopeful, right? And when something goes wrong, the more we belabor the past, who dropped the ball, how unfair this is, how undeserved this was, the more we enlarge what has gone wrong, correct? Which leads to us feeling more helpless and hopeless. And when we fix the course for the future. So how can we prevent this from happening again? What are we going to do about this now? How can we support this person in their time of need? That it really hinges on that fixing the course for the future and finding solutions, not fault. It's interesting as you're saying this, because on the left with a lot of these different words, a commonality to me is that you can uh, you can achieve or get a sense of power from them. You know, the buck stops here or no, you can't. I was recalling as you were talking, there was a mastermind I didn't return to and they asked my feedback why. And I said, to be honest, it hinged on this one man at the front of the room who was consistently given airtime. And all he did all day long was go, yeah, but, yeah, but. And I was like, the energy of that and having to hold space for that meant that all of us were constantly having to justify this new idea we were being presented with. And I was like, I'm out. So it was, it was, it was really, it was, and he was doing it. You could see he was doing it so he could command a sense of power. And when I look at the words on the right, or I feel the energy of the words on the right, they are powerful and power and powerful are entirely different. If you give people hope, you are powerful. That's not like you owning the, the power. I don't have a question with this. This is just sort of the, the energy and essence of what we are talking about here. But it comes full circle to respect. Like respect at the end of the day is going to genuinely be conferred to people who have an understanding of how to be powerful, not necessarily just hold power. That's profound. What what you just said is is really the essence, the quintessence of talking on eggshells and of of tongue fu, which is as you said, on the left undermines relationships over on the right it adds to relationships and when we have a rising tide mentality power is just defined as the ability to get things done and if we want to get things done then the more we enlist people and cooperate with them and make it a win for them the more they will want to do this instead of uh, they want to instead of they have to or they're being paid to or they're being told to and as you say that is power is when people choose to do something because we have approached them in a way that treats them with respect and they feel included instead of excluded and decisions are being made by them instead of to them i'm going to pick up off of this even further i wish we had a whiteboard right now sam ah. <laughs> I feel like uh, the through line from power to powerful and the thing that enables the zip line from one to the other mm. is, is work on or acknowledgement of your self-worth mm. and the deeper your self-worth goes, the easier it is to move towards places that make you powerful as opposed to hanging on to mm. uh, power. But I'm going to have to sit with that one. That mm. is like, that's a meditation for a morning on my side. I doodle as I, um, as I podcast. And so that was just, that is just what I doodled onto this piece of paper as we were, we were ziplining from power to powerful with self-worth. 
See, you just articulated in 17 years of Maui Writers Conference, we would have authors get up and say, you have to work with an outline. The next speaker would say, I never work with an outline. You have to work first thing in the morning. I never get going until night. (laughs) The only thing they agreed on was what you just said. Ink it when you think it. Jot the thoughts when they're hot. Muse it so you don't lose it. And as you already know, because you do it all the time, you are kinesthetically articulating what is uh, coming to you and through you, right? And so instead of just thinking it, which is one sense, when we embody it and kinesthetically write it down, it becomes a creative act that is tangibly joyful and satisfying, isn't it? It's totally satisfying. I feel if I was a better artist, I would like collate these and share them. But uh, absolutely, if you don't write it down, I remember hearing this in one of your books, Ink It When You Think It, and I was like, that is so true. And I had about 10 other ideas while I was out on a walk that day listening to your book. They're gone. They're like, I thought they were just so good they would come back to me. No, no. There's like millions of dollars worth of good ideas that have just evaporated into the ether. But it's, it's absolutely true. And so let's imprint this for all of all of our listeners is that we make a living from our mind. And what you just said about we assume that we'll remember it in the morning, that when we get back from the walk, that so forth. No, they don't call them fleeting thoughts for nothing, right? (laughs) Is that best, you know, first thought, best thought. And when the muse breaks through the filter and brings something to our attention, it is an idea that wants to be born. And how we honor the muse and how we keep this stream of consciousness going is to write things down in the moment because then we're free to forget them, which mean other thoughts keep coming and we keep the momentum. The, the train of thought will continue if you write it down so that the train can continue. I just 100% agree with you. I mean, you know me, you've seen me. I'm at events. What do I have in my hand? Totally. <laughs> A notebook, right? Because when people are talking, I am writing down what pops out. I'm capturing key words. Not only does it free them up to stay in stream of consciousness because they know that someone is getting it down so so that if it's brilliant, it's not going to be lost. So not only is it a way of honoring them, when it finished, guess what these are? Dots. You know, Kierkegaard said, we can only understand life backwards. We have to live it forward. Steve Jobs said, you can't connect the dots forward. You can only connect them backward. 100% disagree. Brilliant men. It's like when you're right, you're connecting dots in real time, aren't you? Collecting and connecting dots. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is like it's, it's the gateway to, to flow. We didn't have a chance to get into it, which means we're going to have to have part two of this conversation, which I'm already excited about. But can you give our audience just like a little bit of a, like a lift the veil on what talking on eggshells is all about? You know, Kinsey reported uh, that rudeness is getting worse and incivility is on the rise. And we've all experienced this. You know, I know families who are not meeting together anymore because one person has a volatile political belief, you know, that they have different views on vaccinations or whatever. I believe that our role and goal in life is to be a peacemaker and to see how we can use language and set an example so other people respond in kind. And that when we go first, 
And when we show that we can act in integrity and get things done, that we can be kind and compassionate and be a force of nature and a force for good, that the more we do that, then the more other people see that it's possible and choose to do it too. And I believe this is our contribution. This is amazing. I'm going to call this episode a crash course in leadership with Sam Horn. I've got a few quick questions for you, Sam, as we wrap up the interview. I call these my impact ingredients. My first question is, what is your motivational beverage of choice? Whether it's healthy for me or not, I have to say coffee. I do have coffee first thing in the morning, and it puts a little uh, pep in my step. The, the current pendulum of research is totally in your favor. So just hang out in that, in that space for now. What is the biggest non-negotiable for you in your life? Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, being close with my family and friends. It's uh, Health is a quick second, right? <laughs> a quick second. It's just that uh, we can have fame and fortune. We can have all of that. And it's nice. And I welcome it. And at the end of the day, at the end of our life, it will not be what matters. What matters is do the people we care about care about us? And are we taking the time to spend with them so that we're not just giving it lip service, that it is truly how we show up every day? As an entrepreneur, were you born with it? Or did you learn to become an entrepreneur? I thank you. I love your questions. I I thank my mom and dad for that. Uh, my sister and I grew up on horses. When we were seven and eight years old, we'd be gone all day long on our horses. And our parents did not warn us of the dangers. They did not say, oh, what if they fall off? What if they were, you know, it's like bridle breaks, figure it out, get bucked off, figure it out. So we grew up figuring things out, being resourceful, and seeing the world as an adventurous place, not a dangerous place. And to me, that's the heart and soul of being an entrepreneur. Adventurous on the right, dangerous on the left. I love it. Last question for you. What do you want your legacy of impact to be? You know, I'll always be grateful to my college uh, professor, philosophy professor. The very first class, he said, we're going to study Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. But first, you're going to come up with your own philosophy. So our assignment for that first class was to come back and to have a philosophy under 50 words. So here it is. uh, My philosophy, my purpose, my ikigai is to make a positive difference for as many people as possible while maintaining a happy, healthy lifestyle with friends and family. And that is my ikigai and hopefully on a daily basis. It is the, it's, it's one plus one equals 11. It is making a positive difference and having that close relationship with people I care about. Sam Horn, I feel like you are knocking that out of the park. Where can we send people so they can follow along on your incredible journey and the journey of the launch and release of Walking on Eggshells? Well, thank you. It's easy. Go to samhorn.com, S-A-M-H-O-R-N.com. My TEDx talks are there and I've got blogs there. I've got, I guess you and I both love quotes. I've got lots of quotes there, et cetera. So uh, follow me on the different social media, go to my website, and it will be a pleasure to have what they call in Hawaii, a Hanaho, an encore. Do this again. I love that. You can catch links to everything Sam Horn over at meganwalker.com forward slash podcast. Sam, thanks so much. You're welcome. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in or step off stage. It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact.